Okay, so I want to talk today about food in Ireland in the Second World War, or the emergency, as it's called. I think, first of all, to understand this issue, we need to look at the Anglo-Irish Economic War, the tariff war between 1932 and 1938, uh, which is resolved from 1935 onwards with a series of coal cattle pacts. Uh, and then finally, we have in 1938, the Anglo-Irish Trade Agreement, um, and really, by 1938, in some ways, the uh, Irish government is looking at that in quite a congratulatory uh, sense. But as early as the Munich crisis of 1938, the British Board of Trade, anticipating war around the corner, decided that it would be using economic blockade tactics, effectively using hunger as a weapon of war to force neutral shipping into British hands. So really from an early outset and before the outbreak of the Second World War, Britain has decided that it will use hunger as a weapon of war, if necessary, against neutral uh, countries. With the fall of France to Nazi Germany in June 1940, uh, really the, the phony war ends and the issue becomes uh, a lot more pointed. Of course, we have the replacement of uh, Chamberlain as Prime Minister by Churchill, and from mid to late 1940 onwards, Ireland is subsequently subjected to a quite crippling supply squeeze. Uh, why is this? Why does this occur? Well, Irish neutrality is cited, especially at the time in, in British propaganda, the Battle of the Atlantic, bodies getting washed up on the shore, and Ireland's neutrality is responsible for this. The real reason, or one of the reasons, is de Valera turns down a secret deal uh, by, from the British to end partition uh, and thereby end neutrality. Uh, and really this leaves Ireland out on a limb. Ireland is dependent really on Britain for all of its uh, food supply and its fuel supply, or the majority of it. Um, there was a failure critically in the 1930s to establish an Irish merchant marine. Ireland is therefore dependent on Britain for cargoes of wheat, maize and fertiliser. So when fertiliser, feed and fuel are cut by the British, when these imports from Britain cease, agricultural productivity falls in Ireland. So just a few figures to reinforce this economic squeeze, this hunger really, or the threat of hunger as a weapon of war from the British in this period. In 1940, Ireland was importing 74,000 tonnes of fertiliser, uh, crucial of course for an agricultural economy, because the, the, under Church's attitude there was the supply squeeze by 1941 that's down to 7,000 tonnes and from 1942 onwards that's zero so no fertiliser is coming into Ireland from 1942 onwards similarly feed feeding stuffs for, for, for animals 1940 Ireland is importing 6 million tonnes of feed from Britain under Churchill's economic squeeze by 1941, that's one million, and from 1942 onwards, zero. So no feed coming into the country. Devastating for an agricultural economy like Ireland, and devastating, of course, for food production. 1940, as well, witnesses a terrible and very unlucky foot-and-mouth outbreak. Uh, there's m three million sheep in Ireland in 1940. By 1943, there's only two million. So really devastating uh, destruction uh, of herds of cows and sheep. Um, and this happens at a time when Ireland is being subjected to economic warfare by Britain. Ireland, in fact, is the only country, aside from Syria and Libya, where tough merchant naval controls uh, apply to both imports and exports. So how does Ireland survive this as an agricultural economy uh, dependent really on agricultural export? How does Ireland supply, uh, survive uh, this supply squeeze? Well, a number of factors. Of course, you have the, the constant uh, stream of emigration. Um, 
another and quite interesting factor is Guinness. Uh, in 1939, Ireland exports 800,000 barrels of beer annually, predominantly to Britain. Uh, as the British war economy grows, uh, there's an even greater demand for Ireland's beer and, and, and Ireland's stout and Ireland's Guinness. And by 1941, this is one million barrels of beer annually that Ireland is exporting. And this really is to uh, slake the thirst of uh, an expanding British military, an expanding number of war workers. But in Ireland at the time, due to the British trade squeeze, due to Churchill's use of hunger as a weapon of war, wheat is scarce. So by 1942, and again against the backdrop of America entering the war with a thirsty new garrison of American troops in Northern Ireland and, and British troops up there as well, um, Le Mas, Minister for Industry and Commerce, suddenly halts Guinness exports uh, and only revives them in return for agricultural machinery, tractors and the like. So in some ways, the Irish state, the Irish government uses Guinness or, or the withholding of Guinness as a, as a, as a sort of retaliatory weapon of war um, and the British respond by actually increasing the number of uh, agricultural machinery, tractors, threshing sets that they provide and so Ireland is able to limp through uh, still with a, without access to a lot of fertilizers, pesticides, chemicals but able to limp through with sort of through barter, very sort of uh, hard-nosed barter arrangements like that. Uh, this this extent to which Ireland really is producing uh, very good booze but a lot of other stuff is in very short supply is captured by, captured by John Betjeman the future uh, English poet laureate who writes in 20, on the 27th of March 1943 Guinness good, sherry good, no wine no coal, no petrol, no gas, no electric, no paraffin so really capturing there the lack of fuel, lack of food in the country at the time but at least, of course, the Guinness is good. And Ireland actually uses Guinness as a weapon of war in some ways. I want to move on uh, to my second point. So firstly, I've covered there hunger as a weapon of war. But what other issues are attached to food in Ireland during the Second World War? I think we need to look at what Claire Wills in her book, That Neutral Island, describes as narratives of absence versus abundance. In wartime societies, a constant is a narrative of absence and it's corollary, a narrative of abundance. What do I mean by that? Well, enduring an absence of desirable food often drives aggression towards one's foe, who, it is imagined, is indulging in gluttonous abundance at your expense. So in, in propaganda from combatant nations, you often have the dichotomy of absence versus abundance. Likewise, the history of conflict, and if we look at the propaganda of conflict, is replete with... Uh, themes of enemy life as one of culinary deprivation, of absence. You th see this throughout the Cold War, for instance, uh, and associating the good fight with the promise of abundance, so abundant food. So you often get this uh, dichotomous narrative of absence versus abundance, and Ireland is no exception. In Ireland in the Second World War, uh, due to uh, a, a really quite stagnant economy, due to British trade restrictions, crime rises, unemployment rises, wages are frozen, critically, uh, the cost of living rises as wartime inflation takes off, and common foodstuffs gradually start to disappear. In Ireland, a narrative of absence in food was part of the state's moral neutrality propaganda, and this term moral neutrality uh, is used uh, by Donald O'Driscoll in his study of Ireland during the Second World War. Moral neutrality refers to the fact that the state in the Second World War portrayed Ireland as exceptional. Spiritual Ireland would be aloof from greedy, materialistic war. 
what we actually see, though, in Ireland at the time is not a sort of uh, a studied adherence to the idea of moral neutrality, but rather because there were such deprivations in, in terms of the material side of things, an aggravated disparity between urban Ireland and rural Ireland. Urban dwellers with less access to the fat of the land and people in rural areas who uh, traditionally were able to, to, to grow a certain amount of fruit and veg at home. In inner city Dublin, a large proportion of people, of course, had never eaten fruit or vegetables. They were living essentially on diets of bread and tea. Uh, there were rumours surrounding uh, wartime uh, disruption in trade, that fish were being dumped at sea to drive up prices, and that a secret fruit ring was at work in controlling the supply of fruit in the city. The poor are like hunted rats looking for bread, remarked one uh, member of Dáil Éireann, of the bread queues which had developed as flour dwindled in the city. But these urban deprivations in food tied in really quite neatly with the penchant in Irish official political culture for the frugal rural idyll of the time. The absence of food in urban areas, I think, links in some ways with this hegemonic political ruralism of the time, a narrative that held the agrarian smallholder aloof and pitied the stressed out impurity of urban life. And so if we look in terms of our narratives of absence and abundance to the Irish countryside, in some ways you can see it as one of abundance. In contrast to city dwellers, Irish country dwellers grew their own fruit and veg. Perhaps in season they might eat nuts and berries, raise pigs and hens, sometimes on the farm, sometimes in the house, uh, and slaughter and eat these animals at home. Compared to people in Britain, especially urban Britain, uh, Irish people in the countryside in some ways had a lot more uh, food to get by on. They had more dairy produce, certainly, and a lot more meat in their diets. But one thing militating against this narrative of abundance in the Irish countryside is the remoteness of rural areas at the time. This aggravated the absence of food. There would be no shops for miles. It's not as if you could just go down the road to the grocers in some of these outlying rural areas. No transport, uh, no fuel, hardly any trains, no cars, no private motoring in Ireland to transport food to people. So as food shortages continued, urban dwellers looked angrily to a perceived abundance in rural food, while experiencing similar food absence, people in rural Ireland blamed Dublin centralism. So there's an aggravated link between absence and abundance between rural Ireland and urban Ireland at the time. They think outside Dublin there's a land flowing with milk and honey. This is absurd, said one disgruntled rural creamy, creamery manager at the time. There were reports of people in outlying areas in the countryside in Ireland certainly not uh, indulging in abundant food. Practically on a black fast, some were reported as being, and some areas reported as experiencing bread famines. A rare entry in De Valera's 1943 diary records a visit to a small town in the remote west, and reads simply, no bacon, no potatoes, no butter, no work. Hurried to a remote Irish-speaking area in the west of Ireland in 1942, uh, a senior Irish civil servant recalled half-starving people, as he put it, moving down from the hills towards his car, all carrying sacks, expecting the sacks to be filled with flour, of which there was none. They harangued him in Irish when he was unable to fill their sacks, cursing Dublin and claiming that they feared a recurrence of the Great Famine. Perhaps the most potent symbol of absence in Ireland in World War II, and one shared by rural and urban dwellers, was the hated black loaf of bread, a 100% whole grain staple resulting from Ireland's chronic wheat shortage, which again was a consequence of dependence on 
uh, the British market. The 100% black loaf caused calcium deficiency. Dublin hospitals consequently reported an increase in rickets in children. A 1943 report found that in Dublin, half of all children aged between 18 months and two years had rickets. There were points in the Second World War in Ireland, or the emergency, as the centenary of Ireland's great hunger approached, where a recurrence looked very likely indeed. Not that you'd have realised this, I think, by reading the British newspapers of the time, where you often get really greedy narratives, bacchanalian narratives of Irish greed and plenty, while the British combatant nation and people uh, have to make do with austerity diets. But really, this wasn't the case in Ireland at the time. Notwithstanding this, the British press looked at absence of food in Britain and blamed this not only on Nazi rapaciousness or, or, or Nazi imperialism, but also uh, on the myth of the greedy neutral. And Ireland, as the nearest neighbour, was portrayed as a food abundant, uh, greedy neutral in many ways. And on one occasion, uh, illustrating the strength of these sort of arguments in Britain at the time, it takes the prediction of, quote, famine conditions in Ireland by an Anglo-Irish peer, Lord Granard, to secure the release from Britain of chemicals, vital chemicals, needed to prevent potato blight. So I'm painting a picture here, really, of great deprivation in food, great hardship uh, in Ireland in the Second World War and the emergency. But in some ways, these, these narratives of hardship have become uh, really quite funny in some ways. I mean, in, in some ways, you look at uh, narratives, uh, the likes of Angela Zash's popular narratives from the period, and in some ways, these have become quite hackneyed. Um, so if we move on then thirdly to another constant or staple of wartime experience, really, across different contexts. And that's the reversion of people to alternative foodstuffs. So people don't always uh, resign themselves to starvation. There's often alternative foodstuffs. Now, depending on um, how bad things are, that can that can be uh, a resort to eating uh, people, if necessary, tree bark, all sorts of things, all sorts of reports you get. So in Ireland, what sort of substitutes did people turn to as supplies of food ran low? Well, first of all, we've got to look at what did run low in Ireland, what people were missing um, from their usual diets due to wartime trade disruption, due to the British uh, supply blockade. As a contemporary Irish government report put it, for many poor families in Ireland at the time, tea was the principal item of food, for which neither coffee nor cocoa provides a suitable substitute. Ireland had the highest consumption of tea in the world in this period, so predictably when tea was reduced quite early on in the emergency to a meagre half-ounce ration, all sorts of nasty substitutes cropped up. Probably the most unpalatable, uh, we have a record of a prosecution for watered-down turf mould being served as tea. And you get lots of reports from uh, this period, literary evocations, but also uh, accounts in periodicals like The Bell of poor families drying tea leaves and reusing them several times. It's a bit like the, the, the old student trick of reusing the tea bag. We also come to to the great shortage in wheat and look at the black loaf, the really unpopular black loaf. I mean, although the nutritional benefits of the black loaf were trumpeted by Irish government propaganda, it was never popular with the people. So great was people's desire for white flour and white bread that people would sieve the brown flour uh, through socks and stockings and other implements to try and get the white bits out. 
So the black loaf, uh, although it was trumpeted as nutritionally superior, never popular. And of course, as we've seen, causes nutritional deficiency, which results in rickets in a lot of people. In rural areas, uh, people, in terms of substitute foods, turn to hunting rabbits, and rabbit meat becomes a staple, especially in the islands off the west coast. There are reports also that many Dubliners got their first taste of venison by illegally poaching the deer in Dublin's Phoenix Park, and rumours too, probably apocryphal, but who's to judge, of people breaking into Dublin Zoo at night and eating some of the animals. There's certainly reports of the carnivora of Dublin Zoo suffering uh, from the food disruption and the, the hungry bellies of a lot of people in Ireland at the time. This brings me on to uh, my fourth big theme, really, of this podcast, which is the idea of moral economy. Given these conditions, another staple of war economies developed, uh, and that was the idea of when you have the restriction of supply, uh, when you have the idea of a collective effort, or be that a collective step-together neutrality, um, in these conditions, even in a neutral country, an enhanced morality grows up. And especially if we look at Ireland as a Catholic country in this period, or a predominantly Catholic country, an enhanced morality grows up in all areas. But what I want to focus on is the morality concerning consumption. Now, it's been argued uh, by historians such as Dermot Ferreter that the privileging of the moral in Ireland of this time, the idea of the moral, marks Ireland as exceptional in a European context. Alongside this idea of moral neutrality propaganda, to return to that idea, that Ireland was portraying itself as virtuous and neutral, uh, of possessive of a spirituality, I suppose, uh, absent in other nations. Alongside that moral neutrality, there was what I've looked at uh, in my work, which is the idea of moral economy. Now, moral economy is a, is a, a very old concept. Um, going back to all sorts of contexts, you, you find it in Shakespeare's Coriolanus, you find it uh, predominantly in a historical context in the 18th century with the foundation of modern market economies, uh, coming up against that older um, feudal economy, if you like, and those sort of mutual obligations of fair price being railroaded or sort of bulldozed, if you like, by a uh, modern market economy. So in using that term moral economy in the mid-20th century in Ireland, I'm, grilled, I'm guilty, I suppose, of, of, of anachronism. But if we run with this idea of uh, a moral economic status uh, of Ireland at the time, of Irish society of the, of the time. We look at government action, for example, which pursues what I've termed a very moral economic line, especially when it comes to combating that other staple of wartime disruption and deprivation in food, which is the black market. The government produces uh, very uh, moralistic um, tracks to justify the prosecution of businessmen for offences such as insider trading on supplies of sugar, this kind of thing, of, of fraudulent activity, of overpricing in the marketplace. Any news items on the food position were likely uh, to cause panic and were subsequently censored. So the state is is fulfilling the duties of a humane state in, in preventing panic buying, if you like, and preventing large-scale social discord, or, or, or if you look at the pronouncements of uh, Minister for the Coordination of Defensive Measures, Frank Aiken, this is, this is really the tone he takes. It's a moral economic tone. Adverts offering goods for sale at prices in excess of the state's price, fixed pricing, so we have a fixed pricing system, were likewise censored. 
And what of the church? Well, of course, from the pulpit, parish priests regularly decry the Irish black market and emphasise the spiritual duty, the spiritual duty of Catholics to refuse and report offers of black market goods. At harvest time especially, and again we come back to the fact that Ireland is an agricultural economy, the government ensures that bishops condemned food waste and urged maximum production. And there's a great degree of coalescence between Irish government ministers and Irish bishops on this issue. The state, as I've mentioned, introduced maximum price uh, orders for commodities undergoing the most serious price inflation, such as sugar and tea. And it did this with the honourable intention of preventing panic buying and preventing some people from not getting their fair share. But these maximum price orders vary day by day and week by week. And it's something I've explored in my biographical study of Sean Lamas. Really, these price orders vary on such um, a frequent basis that people come to negotiate their own prices rather than the state's set price. People just don't adhere to the state's set price. Now, this, the problems attached to this, again, are inherent within conflict societies. However, a full rationing system could have abated a lot of these issues, a lot of these uh, engrossing of prices, okay, a lot of the uh, profiteering activities, which were so despised in Ireland at the time and resulted in some people uh, really coming out of the emergency, in some ways half-starved. Crucially, I think a full rationing system could have been instituted earlier in Ireland. It wasn't instituted until the middle of 1942. The Irish public were consequently confused, I think, by the transition from partial rationing and price controls with the emphasis which Lamas, as Minister for Supplies, puts on things of voluntary curtailment of consumption. He was always saying that it's up to the people voluntarily to curtail, to curtail their own consumption, to not pursue greedy consumption of food and to sort of adhere to a self-rationing system. So people are confused from this voluntarist ethic uh, to 1942, mid-1942, where the Irish state suddenly and belatedly swings into a full rationing system. My overriding point here is that Ireland's full rationing system was instituted so late that the cultural and economic practice of the black market and black market trade in food, black market prices in food, was already well, well established in Ireland. Rationing was not implemented as late in other states and even in other neutral states. This led to what I describe in my forthcoming book as an introverted moral economy. What do I mean by an introverted moral economy? Well, there was a populist sentiment at the time consistent with this moral introversion of conflict societies which demonised the profiteering middleman. The middleman was really the folk bogey of the piece. It also demonised the hoarding middle class, the gombean man, if you like. But this same ethic saw nothing wrong in engaging in the black market for food here and there. Defying rationing and price restrictions, Many people negotiated their own economy between maximum price orders for food and the rationing system for food on the one hand and black market prices on the other. Now again, in this regard, Ireland is not exceptional. But let's return to this idea where Ireland is somewhat exceptional in this period. So let's return to that idea of the privileging of the moral in society. Let's look at the relationship between church and state. Church and state were often very closely linked in this period. Uh, the moral confusion over food pricing uh, is best summarised, though, in a fierce theological debate 
uh, fierce is not often a word that is described uh, when we talk about theological debate, but there was a theological debate which took place in the pages of the normally sedate Irish ecclesiastical record, which demonstrates really that although church and state were very close in this period, with, as I've mentioned, the bishops backing the Irish government's Grow More Food campaign uh, and, and in their sermons warning against the black market, there were key differences, and it, and it relates back to this idea of morality. Theologians disagreed uh, over whether people were bound to obey state law if it was excessive. It's this issue of, in some instances, the state deriving the right in the interest of the common good to infringe personal liberty. And there's a, a debate within Catholic social theory about the extent to which people were bound to obey state law. And as the emergency progressed, as we had a, a really quite fastidious censorship system in Ireland, as you had under Sean Lamas as Minister for Supplies, a really quite fastidious, fastidious and very well policed, resourced uh, and punitive, uh, punitively dealt with uh, issue of rationing uh, and control of food, some people came to view these controls in a neutral country as excessive as verging on authoritarianism. In some cases the state's fixed food prices were deemed too excessive because food was available at prices undercutting or, or exceeding uh, these state-driven prices. And to the despair of the government, the prominent theologian announced in the pages of the Irish Ecclesiastical Record that it was not sinful for food retailers, quote, to charge something more and the controlled price for food, provided, quote, that the excess is within reasonable limits. Therefore, charging 20 shillings, for example, for a pound of tea was wrong because that was well in excess of the government's controlled price. But charging a shilling or two over the controlled price, and let's remember that the controlled price differed sometimes on a weekly basis, was, according to this theologian, justified. After all, he reasoned, there's nothing like a nice cup of tea. Now, this sort of attitude infuriated the government. But it illustrates again that although church and state were very much chiming and very much in step on their anti-black market message, on their food conservation uh, and anti-food waste message, on their food productivity message, there were still some key points of disagreement. And I've discussed in my forthcoming book how Irish priests really reacted quite strongly to state measures, uh, for instance, in terms of fuel and food rationing, which impacted on them and on their privileged place within society. Under these conditions, and under the, the fact that rationing comes in so late in Ireland, the black market in food boomed. The state's moral economic offensive against the black market soon became focused, I would argue, not on large-scale fraudsters, large-scale food racketeers, but quite often on small farmers who are not growing enough crops or small traders guilty of very petty rationing offences. And I've discussed in this and other publications how the moral economic assault on the black market from the state, as I've put it, soon becomes a dirty war. State inspectors prove meticulous in pr pursuing prosecutions uh, against every member of staff involved in a black market transaction. For instance, if I'm a state inspector, I'm undercover, and this is how this, this war against the black market was waged, undercover inspectors would go in a shop, uh, buy something, uh, at, and if it was at a price which contravened the state's set price, 
Prosecutions for, quote, aiding and abetting included not only the shop owner, but their spouses, the, any other staff who were working that day, even shop boys or girls could be um, prosecuted under this quite draconian legislation. But the state becomes increasingly frustrated by an independent judiciary unwilling to pass down heavy sentences. Throwing out a prosecution for the overcharging of tea, a common prosecution uh, in the emergency in Ireland in 1943, a Dublin justice declared that he did not pretend to keep track of price orders. In fact, he said, there are so many of them that I am baffled myself by them, and he threw out the the prosecution to the anger of uh, the state, which said that... Okay, it was taking harsh measures, but underlying these harsh measures was the very humane goal of preventing starvation. And in justifying such harsh measures in the food economy, the state did point to this tangible threat of starvation. And I keep returning to this theme of famine, because in Ireland at this time, you're approaching the centenary of the Great Famine. But of course, throughout Europe, including Western Europe, you have many serious famines in which hundreds of thousands of people die at this time and although we have a heavily censored Irish press at the time policymakers in Ireland are acutely aware of this and the threat of starvation in Ireland in the Second World War because of that disruption to agricultural trade because they're not getting fertilizers feeds chemicals pesticides all the rest really is a tangible one really quite a realistic one so in some ways okay the state's entitled to take a moral economic high ground. Fair enough. But this becomes eroded somewhat by political attitudes. And in particular, if we look at Ireland's land border with Northern Ireland, the very existence of which, as a separate entity, the Irish state and the Irish government of Fianna Fáil, de Valera, at this stage, opposed. Separate rationing schemes were introduced, it's important to note, on either side of the border leading to demand for items more readily available in one territory than another. So in the north, coming under the British rationing system, butter, bacon, eggs, sausages, uh, hams, beefs, jellies are items of high demand because you can't get them through the ration, the, the, the British ration which Northern Ireland is on. And they're lapped up by hungry northerners. They come north illegally. In the opposite direction, illegally, flow goods that people south of the border Uh, due to restrictions, thanks to that British economic war, Churchill's supply squeeze, can't get, such as sugar, tea, and most commonly, white flour. And this is where we come back to the old black black loaf. Now, initially, Irish officials turn a blind eye to the illegal trade in white flour because it was not hampering or compromising uh, the Irish state's own food rationing system. But they begin to crack down midway through the Second World War, midway through the emergency, when smuggling really begins to bite and really begins to undermine uh, rationing as it's implemented south of the border. As the chief superintendent of the Drogheda Gardaí complained, quote, middle-aged women from Belfast, all aimed with capacious shopping bags, have developed from being a joke into being a huge drain on the food reserves of this town. So this smuggling of food conceived of as a serious issue, was often undertaken by housewives coming down from Belfast and, and returning to, to, um, uh, to, to Belfast or wherever in, in the north with butter, bacon, eggs, uh, beef, jellies, you name it, from south of the border. The opposition of the Irish state and the Catholic Church to the border provided the political legitimation that many used, conversely, to justify food smuggling. So 
for some food smugglers, perhaps of a nationalist bent, they pointed to the injustice of partition as a legitimation, a justification of their illegal activity. For others, the disparity in rationing systems between Northern Ireland uh, and ERA meant an enterprise opportunity. In contrast to the smuggling of cattle across the border during the Economic War, 1932-38, the new smuggling, as uh, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and their colleagues in Northern Customs term it, the new smuggling of the Second World War, which was very, very extensive, meant small quantities of food and consumer items. So before, if we look at the economic war of the 30s, people are smuggling cattle across the border. If we look to the emergency, to the Second World War, really, they're not, you know, the trade in cattle continues, especially in areas where it's become something of a tradition, but really the majority of people are involved in smuggling really quite small quantities of food and other consumer items. There's some quite interesting smuggling yarns from this period, and I'll start with one from 1942. And you get this in the pages of some of the the wartime newspapers. So in 1942, we get a story of a young male smuggler apprehended by the Royal Ulster Constabulary with two loaves of white bread attempting to smuggle them south. Now, after a discussion and his detention, he managed to escape the policeman's clutches and he got on his bicycle cycling towards the border. The northern policeman pursued him on bicycle and succeeded in pulling him from his bicycle before he got to the border. However, at this point, the youth had just crossed the border and a local potato digger came to the boy's aid and chased the RUC men back over the border, threatening them with a spade held aloft above his head. It's quite an amusing story and to the further frustration of the RUC men, when the guardie finally arrived, they refused to arrest the smuggler because he's he's at that stage at south of the border, which again tells you something about the, if you like, rather complacent attitude of the southern state towards food smuggling and how, if you like, it ties in with a pervasive anti-partitionism, a hegemonic anti-partitionism in the political rhetoric of the day. A second anecdote comes from a very interesting man I interviewed. He was a former railway employee. And he developed his little business smuggling butter uh, north of the border from uh, south of the border. Now, initially, I interviewed him because the the railway was notorious as a smuggling corridor. And I thought he might have stories about apprehending smugglers. Turns out he was actually a smuggler himself. And in one instance, he tells me, his fear of apprehension for smuggling butter led him to empty a station's fire bucket of its sand Uh, replace its contents with his smuggled butter, quickly turn it upside down and sit on it smoking a fag whilst customs men walked by and thereby he avoided detention. And this was a railway employee. So it just goes to illustrate how widespread the smuggling of food was and how this undermined rationing systems in Northern Ireland and ERA during the period. We we get further stories as well of, uh, for instance, male smugglers dressed in skirt and shawl recognised as cross-dressers because of the ease with which they carry eight or ten stone sacks of flour uh, across their shoulders. In at least one instance, uh, a female smuggler was intercepted by customs uh, and they they removed the baby from her pram to find two loaves of white bread. Uh, Many, many other instances where there's no baby at all, where people are smuggling all sorts of foodstuffs, predominantly bread if they're going south, Uh, Again, really meat and dairy produce if they're going north in prams. And as one smuggler of the era recalled to me, 
And I quote, Many a skinny girl went down on the morning train, returning on the evening train heavily pregnant. So you, you, again, you get an idea of the, the concealment of food about people's bodies and, and the extent to which everyone really, and even those within authority, uh, indulged to some degree in food smuggling during the period. The authorities on both sides of the border seem to be shutting their eyes to this pleasant little game of money-making, a columnist in the Irish Times mused. And unless the civic conscience of the people can be mobilised against it, it will continue. However, I think civic conscience was one thing, Ireland's prevalent political and economic culture quite another, and the politically contested nature of the border was used to legitimate black market activity. I'd like to conclude... uh, those reflections on food in Ireland during the Second World War by summarising them. So first of all, we see hunger is used as a weapon of war. The British use a supply squeeze, Churchill uses a supply squeeze, to as a nudge to neutral Ireland to come in on the Allied side. Secondly, around food, we get this issue of narratives of absence versus abundance. Thirdly, we have a reversion, a widespread reversion, to substitute foodstuffs, whether that be apocryphal stories of people eating zoo animals or the more mundane, such as rabbit meat. Fourthly, we get this idea of moral economy, both in the state's uh, pursuance of uh, the rationing system and prosecutions attached to it, and a popular introversion of moral economy and a defiant popular moral economy against the state's version, which grows up. And fourthly, I explored ideas of the black market. So to conclude this podcast then, I think if we look at Ireland in this period... Not too exceptional compared to other countries, because every country really in in Europe, at least, and for much of the world, is experiencing food poverty, food insecurity, food scarcity. But Ireland, and this is another point where Ireland seems to be really quite exceptional, uh, apart from Nazi Germany and a few other smaller contexts, Ireland does not mobilise women into the agricultural workforce. And again, this is to do with the intersection of Catholic social teaching with Uh, political and policy imperatives of the time because every other country tries to overcome their food poverty, food insecurity issues by mobilising women into the workforce, industrial and agricultural. In Ireland this isn't the case and this is reflected in the propagandaic piece called A Fresh Hand in the Harvest Field which appears in the Irish Times during the 1944 harvest season. Ireland's land army are going over the top to produce more wheat the author enthused, very much chiming with the state's Grow More Food campaign of that year. Unlike Britain's land army, though, the women uh, in this piece appeared in the narrative only to bring the men, quote, a big black kettle of tea and beef sandwiches. There weren't, or there wasn't the wide-scale deployment of women in the agricultural economy. Although loath to admit it, the Irish government's struggle to feed its population was actually alleviated by the mass export, of course, of men and women to the British war economy of the time. Let's finish then with this idea of famine, this wretched but fascinating idea of famine and the tangible possibility of famine for Ireland during the Second World War. Famines occurred in the Second World War in Leningrad in 1941-42, where you do have reversion to cannibalism, in Bengal in 1942-43, and again the finger has been pointed at Churchill using food or food deprivation, hunger, as a weapon of war in that Bengal famine of 1942-43, in which between two and three million people starve. Greece, 
1941 and 42, around 300,000 people die at the hands of the Nazis. The Netherlands, of course, later in the war, and Poland, around 44, 45. So famine is a real possibility. It occurs elsewhere in Europe at the time, as well as around the world, such as China. Due to Allied economic bullying, neutrals like Ireland were forced to over-farm land using no modern chemicals and using archaic methods. As a result, in Ireland, the land was over-farmed, you had deficiencies uh, physically in animals as a result, you had less wheat being able to be grown and therefore you have food shortages and the nutritional repercussions. In Spain and Portugal, two other European neutrals of the time, agriculture remains unmechanised and imports of fertilisers fall dramatically, like in Ireland. Unlike in Ireland, some starved to death in the Iberian Peninsula as a result. Not many, but some. And again, we see this as the result of effectively allied economic bullying. Famine then was present in the minds of those responsible for Ireland's material well-being during the Second World War and in the minds of policymakers like a dimly remembered but disquieting nightmare. It was in 1943, after Bengal was ravaged by starvation, that de Valera first proposed that a history of the Great Famine be written to mark its centenary. In Ireland then, in the Second World War, as in many other conflict contexts back in the day but also today, food uh, really assumed a huge importance and food really deserves to be uh, at the centre of our understanding of Ireland in the emergency in the Second World War. <laughs> 